Hi, this is Father Michael Dank, and I'm here interviewing Father John Verano. We're, we're continuing on with our series of Praying with Priests, Father, Teach Us How to Pray. So Father John Verano was the spiritual director of the seminary years ago. He also taught moral theology, and now he is a senior parochial vicar. Father John, it's great to be interviewing you today. So Father John, I'd like to begin just by, as I always do, beginning with some of your first memories of prayer. Can you share with, with us what your first memories of prayer were like? Rather than something specific, I can recall an atmosphere in my home that spoke to me of, I guess, just the presence of God in my home. Certain things stand out for me. I remember very clearly in my parents' bedroom, we probably, they had a, a statue of the Sacred Heart, probably about 16 inches tall. And when you're a little kid, that's pretty big. Frequently a vigilite burning in front of it, which I later learned it meant my parents were praying for something special. Mm. In our living room, over an upright piano we used to have, there was a, a large picture, of a famous picture of Jesus on a mountain top overlooking the city of Jerusalem. So obviously he was sad because of what he knew lay before him. Didn't understand all of that, but it was it was a picture predominantly blue in color. So it was something. Jesus was blue under that. And then in our kitchen we had a crucifix on the wall next to the kitchen table. Uh, where we had most of our meals, and where my parents would entertain guests at times when they would stop over to visit. But this crucifix always was there, and I know it attracted the attention of a lot of visitors into our home. Some, I guess, felt uncomfortable sitting beneath this large crucifix. But I think these things spoke to me of an atmosphere in our home. Of, uh, of the presence of the Holy and uh, the presence of uh, particularly Jesus and the love that he had for us. And so I grew up kind of in that atmosphere and, and I don't remember particularly uh, family prayers other than going to Mass together as a family every Sunday. And then beyond that, as a young kid, going to a Catholic school, of course, we prayed every morning before class and at the end of the day before we went home, eventually learning the typical prayers and our Father, Hail Mary, the glory be, and probably praying those in the evening before I went to bed. So prayers that you learned at school. Right. And then prayed at home. Yeah. On your own. So certainly in your home, you had a very sacramental um, you had a lot of sacramentals right. in your home, and it seems to me that that evoked, for you at least, a feeling of, of well, what, what would that feeling be? How did you feel? Well, I think it, it felt safe mm. at home, uh, protection. In later years, I suppose I could feel enveloped and surrounded by uh, the arms of God in some way. So the home was always uh, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a safe, a place of being loved by my parents, even when they 
had to uh, correct me in some way or punish mm -hmm. me. It was always uh, an atmosphere of love. What a wonderful environment to grow up in. It was. Um, not only do not a lot of people have the, the, the family life of that today, but certainly maybe not even the sacramental life of that today. So you had that warmth and uh, sense of sacred at home. But you also mentioned going to church as a family. What was that like? How did, what was that experience like for you as a kid? The, the church we went to, it had an upstairs church and a downstairs church. It was St. Ignatius of Antioch on the corner of West Boulevard and Lorraine Avenue, the west side of Cleveland. Uh, the upstairs church was huge, especially for a kid, uh, but very dark, very, it seemed very somber, and I never particularly cared for it. The downstairs church was much warmer, uh, much more light, much more friendly, and we would usually sit up front because my father was hard of hearing, and so it was easier for him to hear. Uh, in that church, we were closer to the sanctuary and the altar area in the big church upstairs, even you sat in the front row. Mm -hmm. You felt like you were a mile away from, from anything going on in the sanctuary. So some kids today uh, have to be dragged to Mass. Were you one of those kids? Did you enjoy going to Mass? Did you not like it? Was it boring? What was the experience like? I don't ever remember it uh, being uncomfortable or a difficulty. It was something that we did as family. It was a, a, you know, a family occasion. I knew I could just feel how important this was for my parents mm. and how much this meant to them, whether it was Sunday or Holy Days. This was important then, and I simply grew up knowing if it was important for them, this must be important, and I should hmm. learn from this. So that's interesting. It sounds like even before it was important to you or experiential for you, you sensed that, that your parents had that closeness or reverence or um, encounter right. with God. Right. When did you, can you think of the first time it became important for you? I think things that I, you know, learned in school and brought home. One thing that stands out, certainly preparation for First Communion and the realization on that day when I received the host for the first time of who it was that I was receiving into my own heart. For, you know, a number of years as a youngster, um, I always had a May altar oh, yeah. during the uh -huh. month of May, and I would decorate this table in my room and several layers and probably stole flowers from our neighbor's yard so I could put them. And I had a statue of the Blessed Mother that I, and, a, and a candle that I would light there. Uh, things like that, I think, meant a lot for me to uh, express my own love for God mm. in a childish kind of way. Uh, so, uh, for people that don't know, tell us what a May altar is and how that got set up or who, who helped you. Well, the church, a Catholic church, for a long time has 
somehow uh, dedicated the month of May to special devotion to the Blessed Mother. And so in school, we would always erect in the classroom a kind of a shrine area with a statue of the Blessed Mother. We would sing hymns in the morning to the Blessed Mother. We were invited to bring flowers every day to place, you know, around the statue of the Blessed Mother. Probably uh, would pray uh, prayers to the Blessed Mother. Uh, at times, the older we got, we would pray the rosary uh, decades throughout the day in school. But this whole uh, sense of the importance of the Blessed Mother in our life, I remember one of the priests in our parish uh, had quite a devotion to Mary, and he taught us, which became a very familiar prayer or poem, Lovely Lady Dressed in Blue, Teach Me How to Pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Uh, that struck me in my heart, I guess, some way, and so developing a devotion to Mary was important. And I remember that became so important to me that when my best friend, who was probably made his first communion about two years after me uh, to celebrate his first communion, I gave him a statue of the Blessed Mother. Wow. Which, I get <laughs> looking back, for kids who are eight or nine years old exchanging statues of the Blessed Mother seems a little different, but it meant a lot to me, and he appreciated it. Mm -hmm. So when you, did you set up your May altar, or did your parents, or how did that happen? Oh, it was all my, it was my own doing, and okay. I grew wow. up, you know, uh, they would come in, and, and, you know, they might pray with me there, but it was, this was my, my particular devotion. Mm -hmm. They never interfered with that. They supported it, but didn't push me, nor did they forbid me in any way. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, during those times, did you have any felt experiences of God? You know, times where you just knew that He was real? As I look back, I probably can't recall any specific one. But somehow or other, being at Mass, and in those days, in some of the schools that I went to, we had Mass every morning, um, while the nuns always made sure you were perfectly attentive and everything else. But I, I was always involved or engaged in it, even though it was all in Latin. But maybe it was just the aura of, mm -hmm. of what was taking place there, what we were told was taking place there. Mm -hmm. I think I was drawn into that, never was adverse to that, or was never not wanting to participate in that in any way. Yeah, yeah. So you did have, a, if not an aversion, maybe an attraction, attraction. to that. Yeah. So your prayer, it sounds like you learned to pray as a child from your school. Very they much. taught you the, the prayers to pray, and then you took that home by yourself and had a personal right. prayer life, and you prayed at night before you went to bed. Right. You know, and I, I certainly knew my, my parents prayed, as I said, they had the statue of the Sacred Heart. Uh, I knew, uh, because I often saw my father pull out rosary from his pocket mm -hmm. at various times, and often uh, in church before Mass, he would pray the rosary. And I knew in a special way, too, a part of my childhood, my parents had uh, a devotion to the Blessed Mother and to two particular shrines here in Ohio. 
Our Lady of Sorrows in Bellevue, Ohio, and Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio. And uh, every summer we would make a, a day pilgrimage to those two shrines to pray. We'd make the Stations of the Cross. If we got there in time, we would attend Mass at one of the shrines. But I knew those places were very important to my parents, I believe. They probably started right after they were married, if not while they were still engaged, hmm. going there. It was a day, it was a yearly pilgrimage that we made as I was growing up. My sisters have continued to do that, try to keep that alive in their own lives. And uh, I returned and this past fall, uh, I went back to Sorrowful Mother Shrine in Bellevue for the first time in years and years and was just flooded with all kind of childhood memories of the sacredness of that place. Mm. Is there anyone that sticks out? What were some of the memories of that? Oh, the mosquitoes, <laughs> because it's all woods, and in the summer there was a lot of mosquitoes, but making the Stations of the Cross, going through the woods, in some of the shrines there, there, there were uh, two particular shrines uh, made out of massive rocks. One was uh, a reproduction, if you will, of the, the tomb uh, of Jesus. And so you'd go down into this cave kind of area, and they had this big stat statue of the dead Jesus there. On the one hand, it was a little spooky, and on the other hand, it was a constant reminder of that Jesus had died mm. and had been buried. The other shrine, similarly, it was all out, out of stones, uh, was dedicated to uh, Our Lady of Lourdes. And there was a little waterfall, water gushing forth from the rocks beneath the statue of uh, the Blessed Mother. Uh, Bernadette kneeling before her. Those seem to... Uh, stick out. Uh, but making the Stations of the Cross, because each of the stations was a, a little uh, shrine yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, shrine there. Yeah. So as you, as you transition from that being of a child, and you made a little notion, a mention of this when, when you found out your parents, why that red vigil light was lit in front of the statue of the Sacred Heart. How did you find out what that was for? Do you remember them telling you? or? I don't think so. I think I just, eventually, the older I got, uh, it probably, because I knew lighting candles in the tradition of the church, I, in, in churches we all had shrines and, and banks of vigil lights, and people would go when they had a special intention and light a candle. Mm -hmm. And so I simply presume that if that was lit at home, mm -hmm. mom and dad were praying for some, something special. Yeah. And the older I got, my presumption was they were probably praying for us kids. Yeah. My sisters were getting older and going into high school or and then began to uh, date and things like that. And then I entered into the seminary first year in high school, and I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of prayers prayed for, for me during those years. So let's talk about that transition from childhood, and it sounds like you had such a wonderful experience of prayer and of tradition of, and of the sacramental life as a child. Just that feeling of being at home um, and safe and enveloped in God's love. So now you move out of that house, 
and uh, tell us about that transition and what that was like in your own prayer life to transition. Well, I, you know, moved out of the home when I was 14 and entered high school seminary. And so again, the whole environment there was uh, a certain awesomeness, and we were surrounded by prayer. We were up, you know, at 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, the bell rang, and you were expected to be on your knees, you know, within one minute, and, and say a morning offering, and then get ready, and then by 6.30, uh, you would trudge over to chapel, for morning prayer, which you did in communion with the rest of the, uh, your classmates mm-hmm. and the rest of the high school. And then there was a 20-minute period of meditation, which uh, at age 14, I had no idea what we were doing, but we, were, we had little booklets. We would read a little passage, and you were meant to think about that. The biggest effort was trying to stay awake. And then that was followed with mass, and then breakfast, and prayed before breakfast, and prayed after breakfast, and then you went off to classes and prayed before every class. And then before lunch, there was a period of uh, rosary, and a period uh, where we gathered together, the whole student body, in chapel for 10 minutes of scripture reading out loud. And the day was on, so there was... You were surrounded by prayer, mm-hmm. you know, every day. Again, it was all somewhat structured, but it was constantly drawing you, I think, uh, more and more into uh, that this was expected to be a part of your life as a priest, mm-hmm. that your priesthood would depend upon regularity of prayer. Eventually, I began to appreciate the power of prayer and what it would mean in my life as a priest. Mm. So even again early on there, it was almost like the, um, even when the experience wasn't there, there was the reverence and that encounter came about. But but during that time, it doesn't sound like you you felt like that was a restrictive thing, but a a positive. Yes, I, I, you know, and I, I think it was because the the seminary faculty participated in these things with us. And so they, if anything, they were modeling mm-hmm. that this was as important for them as priests yeah. as it was for us as students. So it wasn't simply something you did in order to become a priest, but it was a part of what priesthood was about being a priest was to be a man of prayer. Mm-hmm. Well, talk a little bit about that, your call to the priesthood. Well, it was, it was a, a gentle uh, invitation, I think. But it goes back to uh, when I was very young, probably, uh, I would say maybe five or six years old. Again, being in... Uh, at Mass with my parents, realizing that that man up in the front must be very important because when he came out, uh, everything seemed to change, everything quieted down, and everybody was focused on what he was doing. And when he would speak, everybody would be paying attention. So there was 
uh, a certain awe mm -hmm. about that person. And I suppose that just settled on me. I can remember then, not long after that, probably, you know, maybe first grade or so, as aunts and uncles or other adults would say, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? As they always ask kids. And just spontaneously, I would say, a priest. Mm -hmm. And they would all be taken aback. But that came out of me so spontaneously. It wasn't something that I necessarily reflected on or made a conscious decision about. Mm -hmm. But it was there. Yeah, yeah. And it really never left. I would talk about it to a couple of my friends that I would play with. And, you know, we'd talk, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, somebody wanted to be a cowboy. Somebody wanted to be a trash collector riding one of these big trucks up and down the street and, 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 and this and that. And I would just say a priest. And then as I uh, began to be a server in, the, I guess, the fourth grade, fourth or fifth grade, uh, there was a certain joy in being able to serve Mass. And again, in those days, that was very important because ordinarily nobody came into the sanctuary except the priest and the altar service. Mm -hmm. There was a, a marble wall or communion rail separating the rest of the congregation from the priest. And so to be able to be in that space uh, there was a sense of awe. I never felt, in a sense, privileged in a bad sense, or that I was so much right, special. Right. But it was, it was an honor, mm -hmm. and it was always a joy. I, I never hesitated to volunteer when they needed servers for something. It was just a spontaneous thing that I did. But why not? Mm -hmm. Who would not want to? do this. And then when I was in the eighth grade, a uh, priest in the parish came into the classroom and said, are there any boys who would be interested in visiting the new seminary in Cleveland? Borromeo High School had, had, uh, had just opened. And so I raised my hand with a couple of other classmates. And so he took us out one Sunday afternoon. Uh, my father drove us out with the priest, and we spent the afternoon touring the seminary with some seminarians. Mm -hmm. We uh, attended Vespers, afternoon uh, part of the office in Latin, didn't know what was going on, but again, it was uh, certainly a, a deep, awesome experience uh, to be there. And then we were invited to have supper uh, with the students, and they had hot dogs and beans. And I said, I can get into this. <laughs> Works for me. And, and so um, my mother saw the paper about an article about the seminary. And I had, you know, been thinking about that. I had researched other religious communities for a project that I had to do for school, religion class on vocations. And I had thought about different religious communities and going through the advertisements, 
I had narrowed it down to a couple different communities where the pictures of the students, they were smiling and they had a swimming pool. <laughs> this was my criteria. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I uh, then saw this article on Borromeo, and uh, then having visited there, I said, why not apply? I talked to the priest in the parish. She said, well, if you're interested, apply. So I did, and I was accepted, and the rest is history. Now you've talked to, um, and I, and I think it's such a beautiful way about the wonder and awe that you experience in the priesthood and the sa or not in the priesthood, but in the in the um, at mass and at seminary and at home and in times of prayer and in, in encountering some of that structure of prayer and the routine of prayer life, and even the notion that for you to be a priest, this had to be your lifeline. When did it become? And, and maybe maybe it never it goes beyond wonder and awe, but when did it become real for you? When did it, when did it become not only something that you experienced and saw in, in others, like your, your parents or formators, but when did it become a real relationship in your life? I think probably not until uh, my later years uh, as a student in the seminary. Mm-hmm. When we began to do what today would be called field education. Okay. In my second year in theology, I was assigned to do some tutoring in religion to uh, a, a deaf girl. Hmm. We had had, or the seminary had had a relationship with a, a school for deaf children in the Cleveland area. And so seminarians would go out once a week and spend uh, an hour with some of the students. And so for uh, a year, I worked with a deaf girl. There were two other deaf students, and I had two classmates. Three of us went to deal with these students. And it was just that experience of trying to share some knowledge about Jesus with these children. In, in a very simple way, a way that they could understand and dealing with their inability to communicate well. They had a little speech, but it was very labored and uh, using some signs or written sums or they could hear a little bit, mm -hmm. or read lips mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, but that was a challenge, but it was... Uh, it was a, a heartwarming experience, and then probably, though in my last year as a student in the seminary, when uh, a major shift had taken in seminary formation in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, and we were the first class of students to have a summer internship in a parish, so we were ordained as deacons at the end of our third year in the seminary so that we could spend a seven-week period during the summer living in a parish and working in a parish. And so I was assigned at St. Cosmas and Damien in Twinsburg. I did mostly, the major bulk of my work was taking census every day, so going from door to door, talking to people, meeting people, parishioners and being invited in in many of the places and, and learning some of their stories 
and their experience of the church. And then also we're able to baptize, able to preach, and to lead um, some devotional services, Stations of the Cross, and, and things like that during Lent. So that kind of experience was the first kind of hands-on experiences mm -hmm. of of day-to-day uh, -day work as a priest. Our classmates would get together. We had to come together and process some of this stuff. And it was it was just an exciting time because it, this was a whole new thing in the seminary. And we were pioneers in that. But it was uh, just exciting for us to experience uh, something more practical than all the heady knowledge that we had been received for years and years as students. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but first I want to hear a little more about the girl that was deaf. What what did that open up for you in terms of prayer? I, I think seeing some of her struggle to come to know Jesus and my need to try to make Jesus as concrete and understandable to her as possible. Mm -hmm. So I had, I guess I had to draw from some of my own understanding of Jesus, how much he loved us just because we are who we are. He doesn't particularly care about her inability to speak or to hear. He doesn't care about my shortcomings. And he accepts each one of us uh, as the person that we are. Mm -hmm. And so if, if nobody else existed, he just loves us. And I think, you know, that was probably the first and very minimal way, but maybe the first way of sharing the Jesus that I had come to know with somebody else mm -hmm. on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah, yeah. And then you began to do that more so liturgically in a... Right, and, and uh, by bits and pieces, uh, a major change began to take place in that uh, about a year and a half after I had been ordained. So, and the first element of that change was when I made a curseal. So what is that? A curseal was uh, a movement uh, amongst the laity of the church. Uh, today we would call it uh, a form of evangelization, but it was a, a gathering of uh, Catholics to come together to get to know Jesus uh, in a more personal way, in a less heady theological way, but to know Jesus and the church that he had founded in a more personal way. And while there was a priest director of the Curcio weekend, and it was a live-in weekend from Friday night through Sunday, um, and you would have a series of talks 
and opportunities of processing the talks. But most of the talks were given by other laymen, and they had women's curseals and men's curseals. Um, but it was the first time, I suppose, I experienced laymen speaking about Jesus in their own life mm -hmm. to other people. And I was, it was a mixed group of laymen, and, and there were a couple other priests mixed in with me there. And the, the love and the passion with which they spoke about Jesus <clears throat> and their experience of Jesus and how they were growing in their relationship with Jesus through, through prayer, through scripture study, uh, and talking to other people because part of the Crisio was that after you made the weekend, you might gather on a re regular basis with a few other people who had had this experience to keep the experience alive and to support one another in your growth. So that was a major factor in my life, opening me up to beginning to share the experience of Jesus. The second one was then when I, my first encounter with the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, mm -hmm. and that took place when I was studying overseas. Uh, the seminary I was living with at the time, there was a group of students and a priest or two who had begun to have a charismatic prayer group. And that group grew considerably larger as some other people in the city and other students from the university where we're studying began to come as they heard people were praying together. And, and again, the part of that was to hear some of these seminarians sharing their experience of Jesus yeah, yeah. with one another. And I learned so much for them. Here I am working on a doctorate in theology. And these uh, first-year students in theology seminarians were instructing me, but I am so grateful for sharing their sharing their love for Jesus with me. Do you have any vivid memories or illustrations that they shared that stick in your mind from either of those? Not so much of what they shared as much as the passion with which mm -hmm. they spoke. Yeah. And then the awesomeness of, of moments when there would be the silence and then they would break into this beautiful harmonious praying in tongues. Uh-huh. And and you could not but be caught up in the awesomeness of this. And significant thing that I learned in that group, and by the time I started to participate in that, there were probably about 50 or so people. And there were seminarians, but there were a lot of other non-seminary students from the university, whether they were studying theology or whether they were in medicine or philosophy or whatever they were. They had just heard that this prayer was going on, and something had brought them there. Nobody was advertising this. It was a, it was a strange, it had to be the Holy Spirit. But what was more important was that it involved people with two different ethnic backgrounds. In Belgium, there's century-old split between the Flemish-speaking and the French-speaking people. And there was no love lost between mm -hmm. these two groups of people. But in this prayer group, 
there was a mixture of these different people mm. and to see them come together and that separation was all lost as they joined in this common prayer in tongues and in singing it was like it was all just one body of people wow. it was deeply moving and awesome for me and i said i want to be a part of this and they prayed over me and uh, i think uh, the spirit of god sanctified me blessed me and spirited me and from that time on my preaching and my uh, uh, a lot of my approach to ministry and dealing with people has radically shifted mm. and that's years ago that this took place was that when you studied in in levain yeah in belgium so this probably took place in about 1973 uh, you were how many years a priest at that time about three or four three or four years as a priest so truly an experience of the holy spirit i, I just I'm, I'm thinking of the apostles gathered together oh, yeah. very much what so. a wonderful experience and, and and i couldn't believe it. as i the first few times i heard myself preaching i said this this is not me mm. uh, you know i don't generally preach this way you know but it was just it and the first time that i was involved in a crisis situation to have to deal with a couple who had just their son had just been killed in an auto accident and he was only about i think six or seven years old and i was helping out in an army base for a priest friend of mine who was on vacation and i was called to their home and i and i had met them a few weeks before because they were also involved with the charismatic group in their area they had invited me to come and have dinner with them but anyhow when i went in to see them oh, all i could do i had no words to comfort them in their grief there's nothing you can say and all i could do is kneel in front of them and say let's pray hmm. they sat down on a couch and i held their hands and i prayed with them as I had never prayed before, spontaneously, out loud, when I finished, they stood up, they hugged me and thanked me profusely, and they were like totally changed. Mm -hmm. It was like their grief and everything was put on hold. They were going around hugging people, thanking people for being there, getting on with the business of knowing they were going to have to uh, go back to the states in another day or two to bury their son take their son back to bury him at home but that prayer had obviously changed them in some way for me it was a miracle yeah for me to do that was a miracle mm -hmm. because it's so out of keeping with the kind of person that i am so shy or introverted that i wouldn't do something like that but and then when I told them, I said, I would, this was a Saturday evening, and I said, I said, I know your grief, don't even try to, you know, come to Mass in the morning, I'm mm -hmm. sure it would be too difficult. And they said, Father, there's nowhere else where we would have to yeah. accept that Mass tomorrow. Mm. I said, well, we'll be praying for you there. Well, I always ask uh, the priests that interview their experience with the 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 triperson god the trinity father son and holy spirit so you've just described <laughs> wonderfully 
the operation of the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit in your life very much. Just talk a little bit more about that, because for somebody that's an outsider to prayer, they hear phrases like speaking in tongues and um, charismatic prayer. Tell us, share, just share a little bit about that. What, well, speaking in tongues, I, you know, is it is it any kind of a language? If you know, they some will say it's the language of angels. To me, it's it's just syllables. It's just sounds that you know when you do it, it it's it seems to fall into some kind of pattern or rhythm, you know. But I don't think there's any any language kind of thing to it. But it is, but it is a way in which you really let go of any mm -hmm. inhibitions that you might have, and so you're freeing yourself up so that you're allowing the spirit to enter and take over wow. and it, and it's in that you you suddenly find at least i find uh your attention is drawn to uh the awesomeness of god and the love of god and what god desires for us as human beings as his children in terms of the spirit for me, the spirit is is power, it's energy, it's dynamism, it's courage, it's it's the push forward and push out of my comfort space uh, to be the servant that God wants me to be hmm. on behalf of His Word. Beautiful, and this also sounds very spontaneous like something that you are not in control of that's right <laughs> and that's it's a wonderful thing not mm -hmm. to have to plan yeah yeah just let it be that's a great articulation of that i think even hearing you say that we all desire that freedom and prayer uh, for god to the holy spirit yeah. to work through us tell us about jesus specifically jesus. your relationship with him the humanity of jesus the realness of jesus is he real for you oh he is and I think that's what, over the years, he is, as I think Pope Francis has used this, he is the, uh, the, the face of the Father. Mm. He is, for me, the incarnate one, uh, the tangible one, something that I can radiate because he had a body and he had emotions and he was fully human and fully divine but he's, i'm more concerned that he was fully human and he understands what it's like in this world with all of its beauty and wonder and awesomeness and all of its ugliness all of its sin all of its pain and suffering uh the foolishness of us human beings our stupidity mistakes we make all of that stuff he understands because he was immersed in that surrounded by that even amongst his closest followers he experienced that in their own life and that's why i am attracted to jesus and that's how i see him as uh, one who knows me and understands me and can be companion to me and someone that i can relate to who accepts me just as I am. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be anybody else uh, in any way. Uh, I can be myself, uh, even with all my flaws and failures. And he sees that because he wants to bring me beyond that. He wants to 
release me from the hold that that stuff has on me. Hmm. But as as our Holy Father has been saying, he's not there to condemn us, yeah, to make us feel guilty, but to feel good about who we are as God, sons and daughters of God. And it's almost the experience that you had with the the girl that was uh, deaf, you know, that the unconditional love, right, in in our inadequacies and weaknesses and inability to communicate yeah. in prayer. Yeah. Have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen him? Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of people, but do I have visions uh, of him? No, no, I, I and I don't particularly care to have a vision of him. But uh, I, I see him, if you will, come alive so often in the in the scripture texts, as, as I read how the evangelists have seen him. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can. I can see sometimes through their eyes and see the Jesus that they're trying to portray for me. And again, I believe the Spirit is active there, yeah. helping yeah. me get a glimpse of Jesus, flesh him out a bit for me. Mm -hmm. Any scripture passages in particular that are some of your favorites? Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Where he's off, often frustrated with his disciples because they just don't get what he's saying. So he tells them he's on his way to Jerusalem and he must suffer and die. And they say, oh, this couldn't possibly happen to you, Jesus. You know, no, 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 don't talk about those things. We don't want to hear that stuff. And and then he's talking about the kingdom he's going to bring. And then they're talking about, I want to be special in your kingdom. Give me, you know, give me a place at your right hand. And I can just see Jesus rolling his eyes wanting to slap them on the side of their heads and say, get with it, kids. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I feel sorry for Jesus. He's had to put up with a lot with that group. But he never gave up on them. Never gave up. And, and his last appearance, at least as John portrays for us, you know, on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he's making breakfast for them, you know, of all things. The risen Lord and Savior of all, making breakfast <laughs> for these fishermen who haven't been able to catch anything all night long. And he said, oh, just look over there, you'll find something. So, um, so having talked about the Holy Spirit and talked about Jesus, what's the Father like for you? What's the Father like to me? Uh, again... You know, Jesus is the face of the Father, uh, but for me, the Father is the faceless one. But for me, the Father is the source of all life, source of all that is. Uh, infinite majesty, and I use that in a, in a good sense. Awesome, wonder, beyond imagination, mystery in the sense that you just can never fully grasp and, and understand and comprehend. But there is that draw and uh, call into uh, eternal relationship with him. But I, uh, I, I like the term father because that denotes 
parent life giver. Mm. And at least for most parents, the thrill of seeing something of themselves in their children. Mm -hmm. I have this image of God looking at any one of us and being delighted. Mm. In spite of our our flaws and our failures, he cannot but love us because he is the source of our life. And there is something in him, in us. We have the same DNA. Mm. So that's where the Father is in my life. And so I don't try to picture him any way. I just come before him in awe and wonder and let him hold and embrace and draw me. Mm-hmm. What I like often to, to do is, is ask the priest to share one experience, whether it be from a holy hour they've made or a retreat that they've made, just to give people a, an, a glimpse or a, an example or an illustration of a moment that was very special to you of prayer. I'm sure there are many. Huh. Pick pick one just to oh, wow. just to retell the story of. <sighs> so many, so many, so many. Well, I suppose one that that stands out, and I've shared this only with a few people, because it's it may sound bizarre. But it was when I made the 30-day retreat, and it was, uh, it occurred uh, at like 2 a.m. in the morning. I got up early in the morning to go pray. That was a part of the exercises at that point in which I was. I think I was wrestling with some of my own brokenness, some of my own sinfulness. But as I began that time of prayer, I was drawn to a passage from the Song of Songs. And it's the description of this passionate love between a man and a woman. And I know the church has used that uh, often, you know, at times of uh, solemn profession, often for nuns. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, it's, it's, it is suggested passage for weddings. Um, and, and the church has seen that as a model of husband and wife in this world and, and of Jesus and the church. But, For me, it was coming to see myself as espoused to Jesus. And I mean, and in that there was no gender problem, Mm -hmm. but Jesus is the passionate lover seeking me, searching for me. Uh, leaping the mountaintops and, and crying out for 
his lover and the bride yearning for her beloved and using that parallel I became aware of again my own lack mm -hmm. my own weaknesses and my own sinfulness what was interesting in that in order to really experience what that meant in terms of my relationship with Jesus, I had to go and talk to his mother. What was different was if I was somehow espoused to Christ, if he was the bridegroom and I was the bride, then I had to go to Mary as his mother, but as my mother-in-law. And from what I gather from a lot of married women, there's a whole different dynamic between, ordinarily, between a woman and her mother and a woman and her mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And to have to go to your mother-in-law and tell her how you've treated her son mm. is tough, is tough. But to do that and to know then the love of the bridegroom and the gratitude of the bridegroom for having the strength and the courage to do that and the love and the affection and forgiveness of the mother-in-law of Mary. Did you experience that? I did. Yeah. I did. That was a, a, a pretty awesome and uh, significant point in that 30-day retreat. Mm -hmm. Was it maybe a turning point too? Um, and that has that has stuck with me for years now. I go back to that experience and renew that experience again and again because uh, there was so much power, so much grace, so much anointing, uh, love and, and, and forgiveness in, 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 that, in that moment. Yeah, and for those that may not know, during the 30-day retreat, you, you try to place yourself in these different scripture passages. Right. And uh, so it sounds very much like that became so real for you to experience uh, in the Song of Songs we hear uh, the bride and the bridegroom, the, the longing that they have, right. this longing that not only Jesus had for you, but you had for Jesus, but also the realization of your your sinfulness. Right. And then to go to his mother with some apprehension, but then experience not only her love and acceptance, but 
Jesus's appreciation for your courage sure. not to do that. Sure. Sounds wonderful. And as I've said earlier, you know, I, I have a, a certain relationship and, and affection for Mother Mary. Mm -hmm. But to, to say Mother-in-law Mary brings a whole different dynamic yeah. there, a whole different grace. Yeah, that's beautiful. So what's your prayer life now as a senior parochial vicar? What, <laughs> what is it, what's your routine look like? What is it? Oh my, I like quiet and so try to play, pray where I'm not going to be interrupted. So it's often uh, here in my room with the door closed. Sometimes I just keep my eyes shut so I'm not to just try not to be distracted and just try to place myself in, again, before the Trinity. Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But often it, it begins with, over the years, and most especially, more and more, uh, the divine office becomes very important. And the Psalms, the mm -hmm. Psalms are just uh, screaming at me, mm -hmm. you know. And so very often my prayer will, will center into just a line or a few words from one of the psalms, you know, and I may have to stop and just deal with that mm -hmm. period of time before I go on and complete the particular part of the office that I was at. But, um, yeah, the, the psalms, because again, they're so, they embrace so much of the human condition. The good, the bad, and the ugly moments of, of great ecstasy and times of deep sorrow and, and contrition and anger, a sense of, of, you know, at times being betrayed or being let down, whether it's by God or other people that you have depended upon or looked to or something like that. All of, all of those things are there and I have to uh, present that and process that stuff in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. But in that, you know, the, the, the product of all of that is, uh, again, coming to know the unique love that the Trinity has for me and who I am and where I am at this point in my life. Yeah. That's wonderful. So, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, Father Verana is, um, he was a spiritual director at the seminary years ago, and he also is spiritual director for the, for the diaconate program now, and he spiritual directs many priests and deacons and seminarians, and over all these years, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that's listening right now, and maybe doesn't have a prayer life but wants one, maybe doesn't know how to pray but wants to pray, or maybe has found some kind of block and wants to, you know, go deeper. What would be your advice to somebody listening? Well, number one is, as much as you want to pray, uh, God wants you to pray even more mm. than mm. you want. And, but he knows it's difficult for you. And so he says, let me guide you. Let me lead you. Mm. Let me... Don't do this to entertain me or make you feel good. 
Don't try to impress me. Just come to me and be yourself. And let's just get acquainted with one another. And it's really very simple. Let's not try to complicate it. And, and don't worry about the words. Be spontaneous. And sometimes you don't need words. Mm -hmm. Just know that you are with God and God is with you. And it will slowly develop. It will slowly develop. Uh, I think it's, it's not unlike a lot of our human relationships. We're a little tentative at the beginning. We see somebody, we're maybe attracted to somebody, somebody interests us. We don't know how to introduce ourselves. We may spend just a lot of time giving furtive looks at one another or something, you know. Once in chat and evening across a crowded room. But then we take that step and said, I'll bite the bullet and I'll just mm -hmm. open myself and say, Here I am, Lord. Speak. And, and, and just see what happens. But don't try to anticipate what might happen. Don't try to, I mean, we can read a lot about other people's experiences mm -hmm. of prayer. And that's wonderful, but those are examples. But what God wants to do to you, that's up to him. So let it be. Don't try to, don't try to compare yourself, the quality of your prayer to anybody else's prayer. Just be yourself. That's all God wants. Well, thank you. And I think the scripture passage that is coming to me is, as you've described now in your years of praying, just going to your inner room and closing the door. You know, just uh, spend some time in silence and be as you are before God. So I'm blessed to be here with you in your inner room, in your prayer room. <laughs> and as we come to this interview, I would just love if you would give me your priestly blessing and all those who are listening. Most gracious and loving God, we come before you as your beloved children. And we are beloved. Not because we think we might be lovable, because you are love. We are created by your love. We are created in your love. We are held in your love. And we are lovable because you love us. So help us to accept that reality and continue to go forth as your children, guided by you, come before you in awe and wonder. Be free to be ourselves. Come to us now, the fullness of your blessing and your peace, you who are Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father.